Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kosesanov. Actually, this week I'm not just your host, I'm also your presenter because even though it's actually a rather blustery day today, last week here in London we had a couple of beautiful days and spring is definitely here. And what does spring mean? It means allergy season is upon us. So this week I thought I'd take a look at my area of expertise and talk a little bit about allergies. This was where I began my scientific career. I did my PhD and postdoc looking at the biochemical and molecular mechanisms of allergic disease. And so I thought I'd share some knowledge with you about what allergies actually are, how it functions in the body, what takes place, and of course, a little bit about what we can do about it. My main focus, of course, is going to be on hay fever because that's what we're all dealing with at this time of year. But much of what I have to say applies to most allergic diseases. So first and foremost, let's start off with the big question. Why do we get allergies? There are many theories why we experience allergic reactions, often described as a faulty or excessive response to something that's foreign but not dangerous, but the immune system sees it as such and mounts an attack. The theory I learned as a postgraduate was that the immune-mediated response was the body's answer to parasitic invasion. In fact, it was thought to be the innate mechanism that was there to help the body defend itself against worms and so on and so forth that get into the gastrointestinal tract. In fact, in order to make laboratory rats demonstrate an allergic response, they're intentionally infected with parasitic roundworms, which actually then raise an immune reaction. The fact that we are almost devoid of parasitic infection these days is one potential explanation why the body may not have any real aggressors or pathogens to respond to, and the immune system remains untrained and can function incorrectly. The idea is that the body sees proteins and compounds which are similar to those um, found in worms or other parasites and sort of misjudges them a little bit and counters an attack. However, this theory that lab animals can defend themselves against parasitic worms um, even without the ability to have allergic reactions, is a little bit of a counter-argument. There have been studies with mice that are unable to produce the specific antibody involved in allergic diseases called IgE. We'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. And these IgE knockout mice are still capable of actually defending the, themselves against parasitic worm infection. So that argument breaks down a little if that were the only reason why we have allergic diseases. Also, the other counter argument is that many substances that um, elicit allergic responses have absolutely nothing to do with the proteins or antigens found on parasitic worms, like nickel, for example. Another theory widely discussed today to try and explain the rise in allergies is the so-called hygiene hypothesis, where we not only have little or no exposure to parasites these days, but we also live in semi-sterile conditions and consume food treated with preservatives, which are, after all, antibacterial agents. 
We clean everything, we use antibacterial soap, we use antibacterial washing up liquid, we use it in our laundry detergent, everything is sort of sterilized. There is a lot of data that supports this theory because the fact is that children who grow up in larger families are much less allergic than in small families or in only children. Also, we've all heard that kids that grow up on farms are much less allergic than townies. I struggle a little with this hypothesis too, because again, there's also contradictory arguments. The data also strongly indicate that allergies are very prevalent in crowded, poverty-stricken areas where there's literally refuse lying in the streets. Well, that's hardly hygienic. Throughout my years in science, and one reason why I chose to start London Heal, is the appreciation of how wonderfully complex and beautifully designed we are to cope with living here on planet Earth. I've never really held with the theories that assume the body makes mistakes or that it has redundancies. We used to think that tonsils were redundant, only to see a significant increase in gum disease and tooth decay in people who've had their tonsils removed. So we make mistakes. Does Mother Nature? If allergies are not a mistake, what are they good for other than ruining a perfectly delightful summer? This brings us on to another theory, that allergic responses are actually a first line of defense to pathogens and molecules that actually cause damage in the body. If you raise a normal immune response to something like an invading bacteria, it takes a couple of days for the body to be able to recruit and manufacture targeted antibodies to these pathogens or invading organisms. And therefore, immunologists have long thought that immune cells react specifically to the biochemical structure of the invading pathogen or chemical. However, Another theory proposed by um, Russian-born scientist Ruslan Medzitov, oh, these Russian names are very hard to pronounce, I know, I have one, is a supporter of this theory. In fact, it is his theory. And his theory is that the immune system can also respond to the effects of the intruding agent. So not only the shape and structure, but what these things actually do in the body. He likens this um, with the analogy that when you have an alarm system in your house, your alarm system doesn't recognize the face of the intruder and sets off the alarm. It actually responds to the fact that the burglar or intruder has broken a window or something else in order to try and get into the house. Many antigens that cause allergies are known as allergens. And they're actually really quite nasty chemicals that can cause damage to the cells. In this sense, these harmless agents may not be quite so harmless as we've always assumed. This theory proposes that the allergic reaction is, as I said, a first line of defense against toxic chemicals and substances. And if you consider most of the symptoms of allergic diseases, such as sneezing, itching, coughing, tear production, mucus production, vomiting, diarrhea, skin rashes, etc. These are all expulsion mechanisms. They're all the body's way of trying to flush out whatever it is that's there and shouldn't be. The increase in allergies may be a reflection of the bombardment of toxic chemicals and agents that modern life exposes us to. 
Moreover, even allergenic plants like ragweed are known to produce more pollen and even more allergenic pollen when growing in urban environments. Like us, they're trying to survive in a tough situation, and so they put all of their energy into making sure that their pollens are distributed and get out and make more plants. So those are the theories, and none are proven without doubt, so I'll leave it up to you to decide which one you prefer. Now we've discussed why we might get allergies, but how does an allergic reaction actually take place? Another name for allergic reactions is hypersensitivity type 1. When an allergen enters the body, either through the respiratory, gastric tract, or skin, a group of circulating cells that patrol looking for invaders take up the allergen and present it on its surface. Needless to say, these cells are thus termed antigen-presenting cells. These antigen-presenting cells then trundle off to the nearest lymph node where they present the antigen or allergen to a specific set of immune cells known as T-helper cells. If the T-helper cell recognizes the antigen presented as an allergen, it transforms into a Th2 or T-helper cell type 2. These Th2 cells produce specific chemicals or mediators that then instruct another class of immune cells known as B cells to manufacture a specific type of antibody known as immunoglobulin E, or IgE for short. Allergic reactions are therefore also often known as IgE-mediated hypersensitivity. Considering that allergic reactions even have their own specific class of antibodies is, in my book, another argument for the necessary role of these reactions in protecting us from harmful agents. But back to the process. The IgE produced by the B cells now combine to another set of specific immune cells known as mast cells and basophils. If you're getting the impression that an immunological response is very complicated, you've hit the nail on the head, considering that there are at least four types of hypersensitivity alone, and there's plenty of other things. There are hundreds of different cells and thousands of different chemical mediators that are involved in immune responses, and, and the allergic response is just one of them. So let's go back. So we now have B cells producing this very specific immunoglobulin E, IgE, that goes off and binds specifically to IgE receptors on mast cells and basophils. Mast cells and basophils are known as granulocytes. They contain preformed granules made up of a whole host of different mediators, chemical messengers. The main one that we are all aware of is histamine. When the mast cells are coated with these antibody, the body is then said to be sensitized, but it doesn't actually elicit an, um, an allergic response. Only when the body is exposed to the allergen for a subsequent time does it bind directly to the IgE on these mast cells, cross-linking them and causing the mast cells to release a cascade of chemical mediators, some newly generated and some preformed in these granules. The main one we all know, as I mentioned, is histamine. Histamine causes bronchoconstriction or a tightening and, um, of the airways. And this causes us to experience this difficulty in breathing associated with so many allergic diseases. 
It's also responsible for making blood vessels dilate and become leaky, which allows all of the fluid to actually flood into the surrounding tissue and causes redness and swelling. Its behavior on the nerves causes the itching. And this is an acute reaction, and it can happen minutes after exposure to the allergen. There's also a slower late phase reaction that's caused by some other mediators released from mast cells that act to recruit loads of other types of immune cells to the affected area, such as eosinophils and neutrophils and a whole load of other cells. If I get stung by a mosquito, for example, my late phase reaction is so severe that around 24 hours after the sting, the area will swell up massively, get really hot, itch like crazy and throb. It is not a pleasant experience and it lasts for two or three days. Luckily, not all people respond with such a severe or in fact late phase reactions at all. A potentially lethal allergic response is known as anaphylaxis or anaphylactic shock. This is where the allergic response can be so severe that it can result even in death. It's a systemic response. The whole body gets involved and it typically causes more than one of the following. An itchy rash, a throat or tongue swelling, shortness of breath, vomiting, lightheadedness and a fall in blood pressure. In extreme cases, it can lead to cardiac arrest. These symptoms typically come on over minutes to hours after exposure to the allergen. People at known risk of anaphylaxis should always carry an EpiPen with them at all times. The EpiPen contains adrenaline or epinephrine and can reverse the symptoms and prevent an anaphylactic shock. Primarily, it raises the blood pressure the patient may require further treatment with antihistamine and steroids. So please, even if you've had to use an EpiPen and you feel fine, a trip to the hospital may not be a bad idea. So simply put, that's how an allergic reaction takes place. The question now, of course, is, so what can we do about it? Whilst prevention is always better than cure, it's almost impossible to eliminate exposure to potential allergens other than avoiding certain drugs and foodstuffs that you are allergic to. There are, however, some tips and tricks that can help reduce, if not eliminate, your exposure. For example, for hay fever sufferers, try to avoid going out on warm sunny days where the pollen count is high. If you do have to go out, maybe go out later on in the day towards evening because a lot of trees and plants actually release their pollen either early in the morning or at midday. So by the end of the day, the pollen count is starting to come down again. Keep doors and windows closed on days with high pollen counts. You can also buy high efficiency particular air filters known as HEPA filters and install them around your house where possible. You can also have them fitted into vacuum cleaners, a lot of vacuum cleaners that are marketed as anti-allergy contain these filters. And also don't forget, if you spend a lot of time in your car, you may want to consider even changing the filters in your car. When you come home from work or you've been out for the day and you've been exposed to a lot of agents that you know trigger your allergies like pollen, remove your clothing for washing as soon as you get home. And that also includes your shoes. So take those off and leave them by the front door.
either shower immediately or certainly before you go to bed so that you're not exposed to the allergens during the night that may have collected in your hair or so forth. A no-brainer, of course, is to use allergy-safe bedding and mattresses. And avoid carpets if you can, and dust regularly. Ahem. Have your home inspected for mold. There are many people who suffer long-term chronic allergic diseases and have no idea what their trigger is until they actually suddenly reveal that there's a source of mold in their home that perhaps is not immediately obvious, is not visible, but it's there and it's in the air and mold spores can trigger quite aggressive and long-term chronic effects. The other thing to look at in your home is to check levels of chemicals such as formaldehyde that are given off in vapor from carpets and in pre-manufactured presswood furniture. Now, of course, it may not be feasible to exchange all of the furniture and carpets in your house, but do what you can. And if you think that that's an aggressor, you can have yourself tested and have somebody check your home to try and remove as many of these sources of aggression as possible. So now what about treatment? Conventional treatment involves the use of antihistamines and corticosteroids, either taken as tablets or applied topically as creams. And in some cases, just pure decongestant nose drops or tablets can also bring relief from seasonal allergies. These can be effective in controlling the system, uh, the symptoms rather, but of course some patients may have side effects from these drugs long-term long steroid use is never advantageous and generally some people just may choose to go a different way and avoid using um, prescription medication or even over-the-counter medication. If you really suffer with certain allergies, desensitization or immunotherapy might be an option. Here the allergens are identified with a skin, skin prick test and these allergens are then injected at very low concentrations at regular intervals over a long period of time. This can take up to two to five years and involves a lot of doctor visits as injections can only be administered and should only be administered where emergency procedures can be implemented in the case of an adverse reaction. This method can be considered to be essentially the only cure when it works, but the problem is it doesn't work in some people or all of the time. Always consult with your doctor if you are an asthmatic, an atopic, which means that you're hyperallergic, or if you're at risk of anaphylaxis before deciding to replace any conventional medications with more natural alternatives. As we just talked about, some allergic reactions can just be irritating, but some of them can really be a very serious condition and they're not something that you should take lightly or play around with. Now, what are some more user-friendly methods that you can use? Some of these methods also fall into the prevention category and can be used year-round to help stave off allergic responses in the first place. The first one, of course, is diet. It makes sense to avoid any foodstuffs that you may be allergic to, but there are other changes that we can make that ensure our immune system is as well supported as possible. Make sure you eat a diet that's rich in vegetables, avoid bad fats, and limit the amount of meat that you eat. 
Indeed, some naturopathic doctors recommend only eating fish, which is natural, uh, rich in natural omega-3s, or small amounts of chicken. These types of fish are known as the smash fish, which is sardines, mackerel, anchovies, salmon, and herring. Of course, check that these are um, reliably farmed and sourced, and also that they don't have very high mercury levels. Vegetables should be as diverse as possible and try to eat through the rainbow. All of these foods promote a healthy microbiome, which strengthens your defenses and really supports the immune system. There are also some specific foods that are considered to help avoid allergies or lessen the symptoms when you've actually got them. The first one on this list is local natural honey. Take a spoonful of local honey each day. And local is the key word here, as honey inevitably contains minute amounts of local pollens and either other environmental agents that may over time help to naturally desensitize your body. So make sure that you get preferably organic but local untreated honey and take a little bit every day. You can also enrich your diet with prebiotics. Prebiotics are, as the word suggests, the things that actually bacteria need to live off. So they come before the bacteria. They are the foodstuffs that your bugs like to eat. So make sure your diet contains high amounts of stuff that include things like chicory root, dandelion greens, Jerusalem artichokes, garlic, onions, leeks, asparagus. All of these foods are very high in a fiber known as inulin, and our little bugs in our gut absolutely love these things and are very happy when we have a diet that's rich in them. Probiotics. A healthy, diverse, and vegetable-rich diet should provide you with a healthy bug population. So where prebiotics are actually the foodstuffs that your bugs like to eat, probiotics are the bugs themselves. Now, as I said, if you eat well, you should actually have a very diverse and healthy microbiome and bugs of your own. However, some people choose to supplement with probiotics. These are bugs that you can take in a capsule form or in powder externally to supplement your diet. There are many available on the market and please do your research because they vary in the number of strains that are available in these capsules, also the amount of CFUs or colony forming units. If there's too few, these bugs will inevitably never make it to where they're supposed to go, which is actually in the colon and not in the upper part of the gastric tract. So you need quite a large number to actually make it through to where they need to go. Again, diversity of your microbes is really important. And most human gut microbes actually can't be cultured in the lab. So if you can, natural sources of intake are always preferred. If you're not allergic to your pet, cuddle them often, except if they've been out and come back covered in pollen, that is. Get out into nature outside pollen season. Work in the garden without gloves. You're going to be exposing yourself to natural environmental factors which will actually strengthen your resilience against them in the future 
and you're hugely increasing your exposure to natural good bacteria to help you populate your gut. There are some foods and supplements that also may help with allergies. Certain fruits, for example, including pineapple, kiwi, papaya, and figs. These fruits contain certain enzymes and phytonutrients that may help combat allergic symptoms. Another favorite is green tea. Green tea is thought to help reduce sneezing and is a great immunomodulator and anti-inflammatory. So try starting your day with a cup. Another thing that you can drink as a tea or take as a capsule are common stinging nettles. Common stinging nettles is a great herbal remedy and is considered really useful against allergies. It's also considered to be what's known as an ancient plant in that it hasn't actually been cultivated for sort of commercial use over the years. And so the plants have actually naturally adapted to the environment in a completely normal way without influence from us in terms of breeding and cross crossing, etc. And these natural plant defense molecules can help train your resilience to developing allergies and actually just generally strengthening the immune system. Nettle also has anti-inflammatory activities and is a useful remedy when an allergic attack is actually underway. You can make a tea with it, um, add a little bit of mint, maybe a bit of ginger root to make it absolutely delicious as well as really healthy. As I mentioned, you can also take the dried leaves in capsule form available from anywhere that you get your natural supplements. Another compound is known as quercetin. Quercetin is a natural compound and many naturopaths swear by it as a great remedy for allergies due to its anti-inflammatory qualities. Quercetin does come in food, and quercetin-rich foods include things like garlic and onions, some citrus fruits, and apples. It can also be taken as a supplement in capsule form, and sometimes it's mixed with another plant extract from bromelain. And this is an enzyme found in pineapple that reduces inflammation as well, especially in the nose and the sinuses. Another plant that's really useful in helping combat allergic diseases is butterbur. Butterbur is a herb, and some, but some butterbur preparations contain chemicals known as pyrolizidine alkaloids. I'm a chemist and I can't even say this properly. Um, PAs, which can damage the liver and cause other serious harm. So make sure that if you purchase butterbur products, that they are certified and labeled PA free. It is also available in capsule form, like many of the other things from trusted sources. There are also some minerals and vitamins and other things which may be useful in helping strengthen your immune system and help you fight off allergic symptoms. Zinc, for example, is known as a great medicine in itself for um, combating cold-like symptoms and coughs. Allergic diseases come under that symptom bracket. It strengthens the immune system and if you, you may actually be deficient if you're vegetarian or vegan. Most preparations for vegans and vegetarians these days do actually contain zinc, but if you're not taking zinc as a supplement, you might want to consider doing so. 
Vitamin C is a great antioxidant and immune system supporter. Ideally, you should take the food form, which comes together with other phytochemicals that are found in nature. Normally, when you buy vitamin C in the pharmacy or the chemist or the supermarket, you'll see labeled on the packet ascorbic acid. And that, we have learned, is vitamin C. Well, that's true. But vitamin C in its natural form in the foodstuffs that we find it in berries and in citrus fruits and so on and so forth is actually a kind of a complex with a whole load of other phytochemicals and agents. And there are a lot of suggestions that vitamin C complex has more healing effects than just pure ascorbic acid alone. The other thing that you may want to supplement, particularly if you're a vegetarian, vegan, or you just don't like eating fish, are omega-3s. Omega-3s are also known to have huge anti-inflammatory properties. And don't forget, any source of inflammation is actually causing damage to cells that need to be rebuilt and repaired. And every cell needs omega-3s in order to build its lipid membranes and lipid constituents. So taking sufficient omega-3 supplements is really important. By the same token, you also need to make sure that you're not using a lot of seed oils and things like sunflower seeds, safflower seed, and so on and so forth, because these are very rich in omega-6. And this balance of omega-3 to omega-6 is really important in keeping your body healthy. So try and drop the omega-6 oils and increase your omega-3s. And you can substitute a lot of these oils with olive oil, which is an omega-9, and therefore actually not an issue. The other thing that's really important when you're having allergic diseases is to stay hydrated. Most of us don't drink enough water anyway, but when your nose and your eyes are streaming all day long or you're coughing up phlegm, you lose much more water than you actually think. And sufficient hydration is absolutely essential for health in general, but in this particular case, it also helps keep those, the mucus fluids very sort of watery and runny and less sticky. And that actually significantly reduces the chances of a super bacterial infection. Bacteria like to feed on mucus, particularly when it's nice and thick and gooey. In addition to eating and drinking, there are some other things that may help combat allergies. First of all, homeopathy. Okay, the jury is out on this one. Many people swear by homeopathic remedies, but I know it's a super contentious subject. I always say, if there's one way you're going to annoy a medic, talk about homeopathy. I personally am still on the fence with this one because we do simply not have any way of proving scientifically that this uh, what the mechanism is or that it works, but I've seen it work so often that it just shouldn't be ignored. If you're interested in homeopathic remedies, try to avoid just buying one from over the counter. If you can afford it, go and see a homeopath and get the remedy that's specifically right for you. The whole purpose of homeopathy is it not only just takes your symptoms into account, but it takes you into account, the way you react, your feelings, your patterns, your habits, everything about you into one big picture. And there's a remedy out there for you, which your homeopath can help find. 
they also will be very experienced in determining what dose and potency to use it because that can have very different effects on the outcome. Particularly, for example, is it just an acute attack or is it a long-term chronic condition? Another complementary medicine or naturopathic approach is acupuncture. There is some evidence that acupuncture can help alleviate symptoms in some people. Try and find an acupuncturist that actually deals with treating allergies and not just musculoskeletal problems, which is the main sort of go-to patient pool for their work. So a lot of acupuncturists are not actually experienced in treating allergies. Try and find one that is. Another great trick is to steam. Now, inhaling steam conjures, in my mind, pictures of grandma with a tea towel over her head over a bowl of steaming water. But it may be an old remedy, but it really, really works. It can really help hydrate and soothe inflamed noses and sinuses and the mucous membranes and the upper airways. If you add a drop or two of eucalyptus and menthol essential oils into the boiling water, these really help decongest, open up the airways and ease breathing. So a steam once a day while you're having a critical phase, an acute phase of an attack can be really helpful. Another thing that's been shown to be really useful in helping combat and deal with the symptoms of allergic disease is exercise. Now, of course, the last thing you probably want to do when you're feeling grotty is go out and exercise, but it really does help. Studies have shown that moderate exercise leads to a reset of the stress axis and it releases chemicals that are anti-inflammatory, repairing and calming. Of course, if you're suffering from seasonal allergies and it's very pollen-rich outside, you may want to move your exercise regimen indoors. But even 15-20 minutes of a bit of vigorous yoga or a stationary bicycle or running up and down the stairs a couple of times is almost enough to actually set back your body. It's actually after the exercise that your body experiences this kind of good stress from the exercise and as a result of good stress it resets you back into rest recovery and repair afterwards which is hugely anti-inflammatory and i've saved the best until last if you suffer from hay fever or sinus infections in my book there's nothing as effective as washing your nose and sinuses out with saline you can use a little neti pot, although I prefer these manufactured bottles which have an attachment, a nozzle at the bottom that forms a seal at the base of your nose and it has a little hole at the top. And you can buy pre-mixed sachets of salt and sodium bicarb that when you make it up to a specific volume that's actually usually marked on these bottles, it produces a physiological saline solution. When you actually have a physiological saline solution that's the same concentration as the saline that's found in your blood and inside your cells, this stops that horrid burning sensation that you have when water gets up your nose. Doing this, so the procedure is with the bottles anyway, that you put it to your nose, you've got your finger on the little hole at the top, you lean your head forwards over a, a basin, open your mouth, that's very important, and then release your finger from the little hole and gravity will push the liquid 
up through one nostril, into the sinuses, over the top, and down out the other nostril. Now, trust me, this isn't the most pleasant experience, and it's certainly not the most fun thing I've ever done, but it really works. It not only washes out all of these nasty irritants that are actually stuck in there and adhering to your mucous membranes, the salt actually strengthens the mucous membranes, fights off bacterial infection, and it really works wonders. I can't recommend it enough. I've been using saline washes for about uh, 20 years now on a regular basis, and I used to suffer not only with hay fever, but also with serious sinus infections on a regular basis to the point that I actually even had my sinuses operated on as a child. And since I've been using regular saline washes, I've hardly ever had a sinus infection, so I really can't recommend it enough. So the discussion that we've been having up until now has been all about the body, how it works, what to do to alter it and help alleviate symptoms and prevent disease. But this wouldn't be London Heal if we didn't also take a look at mind and spirit in this conversation. We all know that stress is a major factor in modern life and that stress can exacerbate inflammation. We've had a couple of recent episodes that have talked about resilience and the role of the heart. It's worthwhile trying to increase your emotional resilience and learn to combat stress and ease the pressures of modern life. There have been some studies that have correlated adverse childhood experiences with an increase in asthma. We know that stress has a huge, huge emotional and physiological effect. Care has to be taken a little bit when we're talking about asthma because not all asthma is allergic in origin. Another study that was conducted in Leipzig, Germany, showed that there's an increase in the likelihood of developing allergies in later life when children experience trauma. There's a saying that we experienced when I was uh, training as a naturopath, that when you see a child with neurodermatitis or eczema, don't treat the child, treat the mother. Now, this in no way is intended to blame mums, but let's face it, being a mum is really stressful. And sometimes hyper-stressed mums, for whatever reason, and even with the best of intentions, can transmit that stress to their children, and the children can display it as a skin rash or eczema. Also, there have been a huge amount of studies that have been done on the placebo effect and how effective it can be. And one of the favorite topics is actually looking at allergies and hay fever, as well as things like pain. Placebo can actually have an equivalent, if not greater effect than actual medications, which means that even though your symptoms are 100% real, they're absolutely physiologically real, you are experiencing tearing and mucus production and coughing and sneezing and all of these other things. But there may actually be a way to regulate that with your mind. So go out there, think about that, and perhaps take into account that your stress responses, the way that you actually think about your world, 
the fact that perhaps you can trick yourself by taking a placebo are all options that may actually help get your mind on board with stopping and helping you treat allergic diseases. If we consider the fact that not all people get allergies or that they come and go throughout life, and irrespective of whichever theory of why we get them at all you prefer, the question still remains, why do some people react and some not? The easy answer is always going to be genetics, but perhaps it's just not that simple. Even if you might have a genetic predisposition to allergies, there may be other factors that trigger that predisposition into becoming pathological. So perhaps stress, childhood trauma, trauma in general, stress parents, may be the thing that tips that balance, switches on those genes, and switches off some others. There's been a lot of work done by people like Stephen Cole, who have actually looked at the effect of our emotional states on our gene expression in white blood cells. And he has shown that, in fact, it has a very direct effect. If you're feeling depressed or lonely or stressed, you can be switching on genes which actually increase inflammation, and you may be switching off genes which actually help you in the long term. So think about it. I highly recommend investigating how you can increase your resilience and perhaps a trip to the therapist could help unravel some of the underlying causes. So dear listeners, that was my little resume on the world of allergies. Um, It's just a flyover, a superficial investigation, but I hope I've given you some better understanding of how allergic diseases actually take place, what actually happens in the body, and also perhaps a few tips and tricks of how you can help yourself. Of course, I can't emphasize enough, allergic diseases can be really serious. So please don't take this lightly. And if you have any concerns, go and see your doctor or allergist. If you've enjoyed this episode and found it valuable, and I really hope that you have, please share. Please go over to iTunes and subscribe to our podcast so that more people can access this and other information from my very knowledgeable guests that may be of use to them. Rate and review us as well, as that helps us climb up the charts and get more noticed. That also applies for our Facebook page. Please pop over to our Facebook page, like our page, and of course, you're free to share any posts that are there for distribution at your will to people that you think might find it useful. And if you would like extended show notes for future episodes of London Heal so that you don't have to listen with a pencil and paper and take notes, then just pop over to londonheal.com, sign up, and become a London Heal Insider. And then every week or whenever a new episode is released, you'll get links to that new episode plus extended show notes. And that's exclusive for London Heal Insiders. So my dear listeners, that leaves me as always to wish you an enjoyable week, an enjoyable summer, hopefully sneeze and allergy free. And most of all, wishing you health, happiness and serenity.